I'm Joe Goff with 3J Performance Horses in St. Augustine, Texas. You're listening to the latest news in Texas, agriculture on Texas Ag Today. Welcome to Texas Ag Today, a daily look at the latest news in Texas agriculture. Texas Ag Today is produced by the Texas Farm Bureau Radio Network with the largest farm news team in the Lone Star State. Now here's the host of Texas Ag Today, Carrie Martin. Hello, Texas. Glad to have you along for another edition of Texas Ag Today. Jump on in with me. Buckle up. Let's take a ride around the Lone Star State as we cover the most important industry in this greatest state in the nation, Texas agriculture. In the news today, feedlot inventories are on the increase. USDA released its latest cattle on feed report Friday afternoon, and it showed that placements into feedlots have taken a big jump. And of course, we can probably thank the drought for that, pushing cattle off of winter pasture and into the feedlots. We'll have more on that report coming up to kick off today's show. My name is Kerry Martin. I'm your host along with the largest and most experienced farm news team in the Lone Star State. And we're all standing by to bring you the latest news in Texas agriculture. From the piney woods of East Texas to the rocky ranges of the Trans-Pecos and from the Panhandle down to the Rio Grande Valley. It's going to take a lot of moisture to rescue the Texas High Plains from its ongoing drought I'm James Hunt, and I'll update you on the situation on Texas Ag Today. The USTR and the USDA announced that after many years of negotiations, American pork is now eligible for export to India. I'm Tom Nicoletti, and I'll have that story on Texas Ag Today. A discussion of foreign land ownership at the Texas Farm Bureau Resolutions Committee meeting has sparked an interest for me into who does own the land in Texas. Hello, I'm Barry Mahler, and I have the story in today's report. We'll have those stories plus Texas wildlife news and a complete look at the markets all coming up. Friday's cattle on feed report surprised many market watchers, showing a big jump in the number of cattle on feed at 12 million head. That's up 1% from a year ago. And would be the second highest inventory number for the month since the series began in 1996. USDA livestock analyst Shale Shagum, who says the reason for the jump in feedlot numbers is due to the big increase in placements. During December, just under 2 million head of cattle were placed in U.S. feedlots, which was about 6% above a year earlier. Uh, During December, feedlots marketed just under 1.9 million head, which was about two-tenths of a percent above a year ago. One possible reason for that jump in placements could be the ongoing drought conditions across the West, forcing many stocker cattle off winter pasture and into feedlots. The report sent the cattle markets sharply lower on Monday, but the long-term outlook for the market still looks bright this year. Shagum says beef production is expected to be lower here in 2022, and one indicator of that in the report was a 2% increase in the number of heifers in feedlots. Could be taken as a sign that producers who might normally have retained some heifers for addition to the breeding herd may have been putting them in feedlots instead. We'll have a better picture of that outlook next week when USDA releases the biannual cattle inventory report on Monday the 31st. 
The American Sheep Industry Association held its annual convention last weekend in San Diego. Benny Cox of San Angelo is the past president of the ASI. He says the attendance was good, especially given the recent COVID spike. Well, you know, with all the craziness, it was it was kind of touch and go with with how many people might show up. I know that about a week to 10 days before we uh, took off, uh, the girls at the office told me there was 260 that uh, had already paid their their dues. So it was a good deal better attended than I thought it might be, actually. So I'm really pleased to say that. Benny, were there any big policy changes made in the business session? There wasn't any real big turnovers in in. Uh, you know, the sun setting and any new directives, uh, some that were relative to the, the tagging program, the EID that's being pushed uh, by APHIS and that, and just some realistic uh, statements, you know, about uh, education to the producers, about, uh, you know, what's coming down the pipeline and whatnot, but, but not any big changes, no. Benny Cox, manager of the nation's largest sheep and goat market, producers livestock in San Angelo. It's going to take a lot of moisture to rescue the Texas High Plains from the ongoing drought. James Hunt has an update on the situation from Amarillo. Even with a few minor moisture events here and there, drought persists all across the Texas High Plains wherever you look. All counties within the region are currently listed as being at some level of drought. Up in the Dalhart area where things have deteriorated to the D3 level, farmer Robert Gordon says it's taken a lot to sustain his irrigated winter wheat crop. I would say we've pumped about seven or eight inches on some of this wheat. And uh, normally, you know, to get wheat going, maybe an inch or two. So, uh, you know, we're sure pumping a lot more on than we normally would. And with Gordon planning to plant his customary corn and seed milo in the spring, those fields might need some irrigating soon as well. Of course, right now we're having these cold spells every two or three days. So time you get them cranked up, then you got to turn around, shut them back off. And uh, so we've, we've had sprinklers off for a few weeks now. But if we don't get some moisture, we're going to have to start pre-watering here pretty quick. When I talked to Robert Gordon on Monday, the forecast was showing the possibility of snow for the middle of the week. I asked him what it would take for a snow to be truly helpful. Oh, six to eight inches would make a world of difference. You know, foot would be better. Of course, you know, the trouble with that is this time of year, if we get a wind with it, uh, it doesn't do a whole lot of good. So you hope to get one of those snows that snows about six to eight inches and the wind doesn't blow for a few days and uh, Hopefully we have some kind of ideal moisture event soon. One example of how bad it's been, as we began this week, Amarillo had received just 2.4 inches of precipitation since July. That's about 6 inches below normal. I'm James Hunt on the Texas Farm Bureau Radio Network. U.S. pork is now eligible for export to India. Tom Nicoletti has the story. The Office of the U.S. Trade Representative and the U.S. Department of Agriculture announced recently that after many years of negotiations, United States pork is now eligible for export to India. U.S. Meat Export Federation Representative Monty Brown has conducted market research in India, meeting with prospective buyers of U.S. pork and identifying opportunities in the retail, processing, and food service sectors. The companies we met with were interested in U.S. pork, primarily bone-in cuts, if they could get them, I think because labor is cheaper there, and 
the products that really excited them was pork carcasses and bellies. They really will be interested in a six-piece bone-in carcass. I know that lots of times the U.S. industry may frown upon producing this product, but it ought to be something we should look at today, especially with our labor problems, labor issues in the packing plants. They also purchase quite a bit of bone-in loin ribs. That may be something interesting for us. And I also think there may be opportunities there for bone-in Boston butt. Brown explains that India is a challenging market that currently imports small volumes of pork, but its growing economy and enormous population of nearly 1.4 billion people offer long-term potential for the U.S. industry. The USMEF representative also highlights e-commerce as a rapidly growing channel that could hold immediate opportunities for consumer-ready U.S. pork products. I'm Tom Nicoletti with the Texas Farm Bureau Radio Network. How much Texas farmland is foreign-owned? Barry Mahler looked into that question. I'd always been told that serving on the Texas Farm Bureau Resolutions Committee was an interesting experience, and when the opportunity came a couple of months ago, I took it. Since the policies of the organization come from the grassroots level, you can bet that the submissions are timely and thought-provoking. One of the topics that was on the list was foreign ownership of agriculture land in Texas and in the U.S. in general. Now, this topic had been in the news lately, and it had gotten attention from our group of mostly farmers and ranchers who well realize that land ownership is the basis for what we do every day. The general consensus of the committee was that our ability to produce food and fiber for U.S. citizens is based on availability of land, so who owns it becomes a national security issue. The discussion got me to thinking about it, and I've done some additional research on land ownership in the U.S. and especially here in Texas. It seems that Congress passed the Agriculture Forward Investment Act in 1978 to better track ownership of U.S. crop, pasture, and timberland. Under the terms of the Act, foreign interests are required to notify the USDA whenever ag land is bought or sold here in the U.S. And there are also some state restrictions on. There are six states prohibiting ownership of foreign ag land right now. Now looking at the website, that's apps.investigatemidwest.org, it lists the land owned by foreign interests state by state. Looking at Texas, it was surprising to me that I didn't find the mega-acre ranches on the list as I expected. Several of the bigger uh, parcels are timber operations, like a couple in Angelina County of just over 108 and 150,000 respectively, and uh, both of those are being owned by people from the Netherlands. There are a lot of small parcels, and I'm talking about seven or eight acres up to a thousand or so. It's obvious that many of those parcels are recreational hunting properties that are owned by interests all over the world, and of course there have been several pretty good-sized blocks bought by wind and solar energy companies over the last couple of years. Well, this discussion at our meeting was fueled by reports that China was buying large blocks of ag land here in the U.S., but looking at the data, I find some Chinese investment, but no major trend in that direction, at least so far. It is something to be aware of and very interesting to look at trends, and the website makes it easy to pull up information county by county. The fear of these foreign investments in land may be similar to the fear that corporations were taking over our farm and ranch lands and operations back in the 60s and 70s. I remember it well. I think a lot of those corporate farm plans were later abandoned, though, when corporate America found farming and ranching to be a business that operates on a very thin margin, a high risk, and it's a heck of a lot of work. This is Barry Mahler reporting from the Rolling Plains for Texas Ag Today. Scientists are studying bats in the Texas Panhandle. I'm Jessica Dommel, and I'll explain why coming up on Texas Ag Today. 
and Cushing's disease is a common disease in older horses. Texas veterinarian Dr. Bob Judd has more on that coming up next, right here on Texas Ag Today. Texas Farm Bureau Insurance has protected fellow Texans with auto, home, health, and life insurance since 1952. With more than 260,000 square miles of land and 27 million people, that's a lot to cover. Whether you're wrangling cattle or wrangling kids, we're proud to protect Texans in all Texan ways of life. Visit Texas Farm Bureau Insurance today at tfbinsurance.com to get insurance for Texans by Texans. Coverage and discounts are subject to qualifications and policy terms and may vary by situation. We're keeping you informed on everything happening in Texas agriculture on Texas Ag Today. Cushing's disease is a common disease found in older horses, but Dr. Bob Judd says the diagnosis of that disease can be challenging. Although Cushing's disease is the term used by many, the actual disease is pituitary pars intermedia dysfunction, or PPID, and the disease is caused by a mass on the intermediate lobe of the pituitary gland, which causes excessive hormone production. The main hormone produced is called ACTH, and it causes the horse's adrenal gland to produce excessive cortisol, which causes the symptoms. The disease can cause a multitude of clinical signs, and the most important clinical sign is laminitis and founder. In the early stages, some horses will just show a behavior change or decreased performance with delayed hair coat shedding and muscle loss. Some researchers suggest that over 50% of the horses over 15 years of age have some degree of this disease. However, many horses with mild disease do not show symptoms at first, but may as they age. Diagnosis of the disease is difficult because ACTH is measured in testing, and the horse's ACTH level is normally much higher from August to October, so different normal values must be used. Also, some horses that are stressed can have increased ACTH levels. Dr. Chris Navon reported at the AAEP convention that even trailering horses can increase the ACTH level for 30 minutes after trailering. The most accurate test to diagnose PPID is with a thyroid-releasing hormone, or TRH, stimulation test, in which a blood sample is taken, TRH is injected, and another blood sample is taken in 10 minutes. So if you have a horse over 15 years of age, consider routine annual testing for PPID performed by checking an ACTH level, and if the horse has clinical signs, a TRH stimulation test is a better option. I'm Dr. Bob Judd. This is the Texas Farm Bureau Radio Network. Scientists are studying bats in the Texas Panhandle. Jessica Domel has the story in today's Wildlife Report. On our last show, we told you about the Texas Parks and Wildlife Department's research into methods to possibly remove the fungus that causes white nose syndrome in bats from bat roosts and culverts in East Texas. But that's not the only research the department is doing to try to protect Texas bats from the deadly disease. Jonah Evans, director of the Non-Game and Rare Species Program for the Texas Parks and Wildlife Department, joins us with more on additional research. We've also been working with the National Wildlife Health Center to conduct a vaccine trial at some sites up in the panhandle with the cave myotis. We've captured a bunch of bats up there. We've treated them with vaccines, and we're waiting to see how that works. I believe this is one of the first vaccines in development for a fungal pathogen, so it's a really interesting, pretty complex science involved in it. White nose syndrome affects hibernating bats in the winter. It causes the bats to wake up from hibernation to address the 
itching or uncomfortability that the fungus causes. As bats do this, they use more and more of the energy that they've stored to sustain themselves through hibernation. Eventually, bats with white nose syndrome will have to leave their hibernation spot to find food or water during winter to sustain themselves, and they end up dying. It has led to the deaths of thousands of bats across the United States. So what we're trying to do is keep the populations above a certain level long enough for some of the resistance from individuals to have some more resistance to spread through the population. So we're kind of trying to buy the population some time to spread more resistance. And, you know, maybe it's 10 years or 15 years or something. That was Jonah Evans from the Texas Parks and Wildlife Department. For the Texas Farm Bureau Radio Network, I'm Jessica Dolmel. We saw a mixed trade in the cattle complex on Tuesday, but cotton closed higher. We'll take a closer look at all of the livestock, cotton, grain, energy, and financial markets coming up next. Keep it right here on Texas Ag Today. As a farmer or rancher, you know life in agriculture is often stressful. Things like the economy, finances, weather, and even a pandemic increase our stress levels and can leave us feeling defeated. With a demanding workload, it seems that there isn't room for the soft stuff, like talking about feelings. Yet, talking about the hard times can be one of the best ways to manage this stress. Although we can't always control or choose our circumstances, we can control and choose how we respond to them. Sometimes that response looks like asking for help. Some would say the best quality of a farmer or rancher is their independent spirit. But what is agriculture without its community? A force of helpers, neighbors, extension, Farm Bureau members, friends, counselors, and pastors. We are stronger together. Find someone you can talk to. Find the help you need. The Southwest Ag Center is working with the Texas Department of Agriculture to identify stress assistance and resources. Visit swagcenter.org stress to learn more. We're giving you the market information you need on Texas Ag Today. We saw a mixed trade in the cattle market on Tuesday, both live and feeder cattle trading on both sides of Unchanged. That's how we actually wrapped up the trade with mixed results on Tuesday. February live cattle were up 77 cents at 137.10, the April up to 140.10, while June live cattle were down 15 cents, 135.42. January feeder cattle up 7, 158.55, March feeders down $1.40, 159.85. April feeder cattle down a dollar ten, one sixty-five twenty-seven. Cash-fed cattle trade seeing some light trade early in the week. We had some reports out of Oklahoma of cattle selling at one thirty-seven. That's fully steady with last week's market, but still very light trade so far this week. Most of the feedlots asking one thirty-eight so far. Boxed beef prices lower Tuesday. Choice down sixteen cents at two ninety-three thirty-four. Select down 14 at 284.65. Now let's check the auction barns. We're walking the pens with Larry Marble. You know, we have special sales at most all of our local auctions in Texas. Ken Jordan had a special female replacement sale this last Saturday. Ken, how did it go? We ended up having uh, 2,775 head of cattle. I thought overall the demand was very good. 
almost all the classes of uh, females. We had buyers from all the way from Oklahoma, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, New Mexico, pretty well all across Texas. And we had 754 on the internet uh, that were buying also. I thought about getting a pair side, the better, fleshier, younger pairs. They pretty well range from 15 and a quarter up to $2,500. Getting a solid amount of pairs and pairs, maybe younger pairs can a little less flesh. They sold from 1100 up to 1500 the bread cow market, I thought, was extremely active with most of the cows being medium long bread. The fleshier, younger bread cows, I thought overall, brought from $1,500 up to $2,350. Getting the more solid mouths and maybe shorter bread cows and some of the younger cows that may be carrying a little less flesh due to the dry conditions in some areas, uh, went mostly from $800 up to $1,475. With extremely, very, very strong offering of bread heifers that were on hand with the bigger, better, medium to long bread heifers, they sold basically from $1,375 up to $2,300. I thought some of the younger aids, the little smaller heifers, maybe shorter bread, sold from $950 up to $1,350. The open heifer market was extremely strong, I thought, overall, with the bigger heifers, rated breed right now, ranging from $1,000 up to $1,800. Some of the younger age open heifers may be to breed in the late spring or early summer. Some of them are carrying a little less flesh. They brought from 800 up to 975. Overall, very, very strong market. A lot of buyers there. Good activity, Larry. Tell everybody how to contact you. You bet they give us a call, Larry. Go 325-372-5159. Also go to our website for updated information at jordancattle.com, Larry. Neighbor, I'm Larry Marble here in Central Texas reporting for Texas Ag Today. Thanks, Larry. Back over to the futures market now where lean hogs continue to climb higher. February hogs up a dollar twelve, eighty-seven forty-five. April hogs up a dollar ninety-two at ninety-seven twenty-five. Class three milk closed lower. January milk down three at twenty twenty-seven a hundredweight. February milk down fifty-three cents. Nineteen ninety-two a hundred. The cotton market closed slightly higher. We're still holding above a dollar twenty on the March contract. It was up fifty-four points to close at one twenty ninety-two. October cotton up fifty-eight at one hundred four fifteen, while December was up forty-eight points, ninety-eight point eighty-four cents. The corn market closed mixed with March corn down a penny, six twenty a bushel. New crop September corn up two, five eighty-two and a quarter. A lot of fear in the wheat market right now over the potential conflict in the Ukraine. We have one-third of the world wheat supply coming out of that part of the world, so definitely some fear in this wheat trade right now as we watch that situation unfold. July, Kansas City wheat up another 13 and a half at 8.33 and a half. July, Chicago wheat up 15 and a half at 807 and three quarters in the energy markets march natural gas was unchanged 387 march crude oil up a dollar 95 85 26 a barrel the financial markets mixed tuesday afternoon the dow up 49 points 34,414 the nasdaq down 171 points at 13,684 the s&p down 23 4,387 that wraps up our look at the markets, and that wraps up this edition of Texas Ag Today. My name's Kerry Martin. Hope to see you next time as we cover the most important industry in this greatest state on the planet, Texas agriculture. Thanks for listening to Texas Ag Today. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. For more Texas Ag news and information, check out our website at texasfarmbureau.org or tfbradio.com. Texas Ag Today is a production of the Texas Farm Bureau Radio Network.